Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. On this episode of Victor's Children, I'm joined by Todd Gordon, who, like me, is an editor of the magazine Midnight Sun, to talk about the so-called Freedom Convoy and related issues. Thanks for coming on the show, Todd. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about the Freedom Convoy, uh, which was, I think, the largest mobilization led by the far right in the Canadian state since the 1930s. What do you think this and the other convoys and protests in other places against vaccine mandates and other pandemic measures, what do these things tell us about the current state of political forces that are more right-wing than the leadership of the federal conservatives? I think it tells us a, a few things. One obvious thing is, and very important, is that they're growing and I think they've becoming, they're becoming like angrier, if you will. Uh, so their street, their street-based presence is growing. And so uh, they're increasingly active but their activity is not contained to the electoral sphere, even if they, their energies will be drawn into the electoral sphere, like party formations, like the People's Party. Um, but clearly, there are organizers uh, who, as has been well documented, have far-right connections, white supremacist connections, who are seeking to build a movement, uh, an actual movement of the far right on the streets. And I think that's really important to, to take stock of. I think also that given that there's an important opening that's happened, and we can come back to this through the pandemic, but this started before the pandemic. And if we think of the perhaps brief or fleeting resurgence of far-right groups in 2015, 2016, 2017 or so that occurred across the country. Uh, Then, of course, there was the sort of Wexit, Yellow Vest movement and the convoy in very early 2019, all before the pandemic. And so the other thing I think we should just highlight is it's it's not reducible strictly to the pandemic, which is to say that what's driving the resurgence of the far right that we're seeing today and the efforts by some to build the street-based movement is not, is, is shaped or colored by the pandemic, but it's not strictly reducible to the pandemic. Uh, the other thing I, I, I think I would note is that it's obvious that this is a, a politically fluid movement. So I'm, I'm calling it the far right. Uh, I think that includes a continuum of politics that runs from uh, fascists to people who are to the right of, say, mainstream conservative conservatism as embodied in the Conservative Party, uh, but who wouldn't themselves necessarily be fascist, but they certainly uh, harbor and are willing to organize around um, kind of racist, xenophobic anti-Semitic, or would organize adjacently to people who are racist, xenophobic, and anti-Semitic, transphobic, uh, people with those kinds of politics. But 
in general, I think what you're seeing here as well is a kind of real antipathy towards more sort of socially oriented or solidaristic politics that places human well-being ahead of markets and what the these far-right folks would probably think of as sort of their individual freedom. Uh, and that would be sort of a solidaristic politics that's often driven from below, people pushing for uh, better public health protocols and protections from COVID-19 that elicits responses from the state. And so the, I think these far-right forces have a really deep antipathy towards those expressions, again, whether it's from a social movement or from below or from the state, uh, expressions of kind of, kind of more socially oriented uh, kinds of public health policies uh, with respect to the, to the pandemic. And they're obviously very deeply distrustful of the government and big pharma and, you know, for good reasons, folks on the left are as well. But it's rooted in that sort of wider antipathy that I'm trying to express here. And so this, to me, is more important than and underlines uh, their kind of openness to the sort of the conspiracism that's go that that is out there. That's we often identify with the far right. Like you know, that conspiracism is real. Obviously, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. But I do think that what sort of provides that kind of opening or a, a, a greater purchase for kind of conspiracy-oriented politics is, is the deeper kind of consciousness that animates these individuals and the groups around them. Uh, yeah, I think those are some things to highlight at this point. And obviously as well, this is the, these, these movements as we're seeing them resurge is very much shaped by the kind of very racist and colonial character that, uh, that is Canada. What's your take on uh, why they are stronger now compared to several years ago? Do you want to focus on, on that? And yeah. maybe I guess another thought here is that there's, I think, this broader trend in, in the culture of contemporary capitalism. China, Mievel calls it social sadism. And I think it's, you know, we, we can connect that to what you were saying about the, uh, the hostility to um, measures around the, the pandemic. It's the, the kind of survival of the fittest, punching down uh, way of thinking that is one way people respond to life in contemporary capitalism. Yeah, I think there's definitely a sort of Malthusian component to the resurgence of the far right um, that has, I think it has to do a lot to do with the successes of the right more generally and the ruling class uh, over the last several decades of, that we call neoliberalism, um, which is sort of more aggressively reimposing market relations in our lives and, and weakening alternatives to market existence that we might have found or previous generations might have had through, say, stronger welfare states. Uh, and, and in that context, when people are sort of like market forces are just unleashed in, in that particular way, and you have greater pressures for your survival through the market and through your experiences as an individual, I think it it does bring out um, or it provides a, a, the sort of soil in which this kind of like antisocial Malthusian politics can grow and people get inured to the suffering of others. Uh, and are, are, it's much easier to place your own well-being uh, or your right to, as you as they might understand it, to um, not be restricted, their freedom not have your your freedoms restricted by the vaccine mandates 
uh, over the well-being of others who uh, whose health is heavily dependent on um, the proper public health and safety protocols. And so I think that 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 kind of I don't think we should downplay that. I think that's an important point. Why the resurgence now was different than say a few years ago. I alluded to the initial kind of iteration of the far right organizing on Canadian streets in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. Uh, I guess the first thing to note is that you see the development of the far right or its resurgence in places like the United States, Europe, uh, India, uh, among other places, Latin America as well, earlier. And I think a large reason for that is because it's also important to note that there's a long history of fascist organizing in Canada going back to the 1930s. Um, There were several different fascist groups, some of whom actually grew fairly large in the 1930s, and you see it again in the 1970s and so on in the early 1990s. So it's not like Canada doesn't have that history, it does. So the reason I think it the resurgence didn't happen as soon in Canada as it did, or as early in Canada as it did elsewhere, say like the United States and Europe, is the global crisis of 2008 plays a major role and the growth of the far right in these places, uh, the sort of very, very intense economic volatility, the kinds of uh, pressures that obviously working class people face, but also the people who I think are deriving the resurgence of the far right, what we might call the m- middle class or in Marxist terms, the, the sort of petty bourgeois, the smaller capitalists, middle management types, um, white collar professionals and so on. Uh, they face significant pressures in these moments as well. And the the depth of the 2008 crisis really brought many of these tensions to the fore. And it provided an opening for uh, far-right folks to get a wider hearing or a wider purchase amongst uh, these layers of folks who would ultimately be drawn to it. And in the Canadian context, the crisis of the 2000 of 2008 was was real but the worst effects of it didn't hit Canada in the way that it did the United States or Europe or elsewhere and Jeff uh, McCormick and Tom Workman in their book Servant State and some of the other writings that Jeff McCormick, McCormick has done for historical materialism uh, and my own writing with Jeff McCormick in Briar Patch and, and historical materialism talk about this uh, and so without going into detail the early 1990s crisis, economic crisis in Canada was much steeper than it was in the United States or Britain. And it destroyed a lot of the, the least competitive um, companies. There was a high rate of bankruptcy and unemployment, and it was really powerful in reestablishing uh, capitalist profitability through the 1990s. And what that allowed for was an accumulation of profits into the 2000s such that when 2008 hit, Canada or Canadian capitalism had more of a buffer. So it remained a bit more stable than in the United States or Europe. However, since 2014, there's been an intensification of economic sluggishness, declining and stagnant profitability, uh, rates of accumulation in the Canadian context. This also uh, has to do with the decline in, in, in oil prices in, in 2014, such that you see now, and this is again, of course, before the pandemic, but you begin to see just before the pandemic and now through the pandemic, really high 
rates of corporate and household indebtedness amongst the highest in the world. So you you know there was a a lag time, if you will, in terms of like the effects of the global capitalist crisis. And I think that gets reflected in the lag time in terms of the resurgence of the far right. So you don't really begin to see it until 2015, 2016. And even then, I think it's heavily shaped by what's going on in the United States, where Donald Trump enters the Republican primaries. Uh, then, of course, he wins and gets elected president. And he uses his platform in the primaries and as a president to spew his openly racist, anti-immigrant, uh, uh, homophobic and so on kind of vitriol. Uh, and I think, and then you also see the growth of the fascist militias in the United States, uh, in the streets. And I think that provides a little bit of an opening in the Canadian context. It, there's an influence on the Canadian far right and groups like uh, the Proud Boys, uh, ID Canada, the Mute in Quebec, the Soldiers of Odin begin trying to organize across the country. However, that they're mobilizing doesn't outside of Quebec, it doesn't really get more than, I would say, several dozens of people in given rallies, like in the Canadian context, in the Toronto, where I was doing anti-fascist organizing, I don't think they ever got much more than 100 people at their height. And, you know, by 20, 2018 or so, it's largely dissipated, save for uh, the, the Yellow Vest convoy in, in, in 2019. And then what happens, of course, is the pandemic hits and you begin to see a more organizing efforts by the far right. You see them showing up to, in, say, the Toronto context, the protests around Addison's, Addison's Barbecue, small restaurateur who is like publicly floating public health protocols. But and you see protesters showing up and clearly there's far right people there. Uh, and then you see kind of weekly demonstrations and marches in places like Toronto, but you see it elsewhere, of course. Uh, you see demonstrations in, in, in across the country uh, that by the summer of 2021, it's clear that there's like, they're getting bigger. They're getting bigger. Uh, there were this past summer in Toronto, marches of, of, of in the low thousands, I would say. Uh, in, in places like British Columbia, you have like in Vancouver and even in smaller towns, you have protests uh, against this pandemic, uh, against the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates in the thousands. Uh, and so it's been building. I think that's important to recognize. And so the pandemic is the sort of is the, is the opening that these folks are taking and they're organizing around these, these particular issues. But again, just to stress the point, this is a phenomena that begins pre-pandemic, but it's really the pandemic is 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 giving them a really big boost. Uh, so the convoy doesn't really come out of nowhere. I think that's it's important to recognize that it's been building for the last couple of years. Okay, let's focus on uh, the kinds of politics that we're talking about a little bit because I do think it's useful to distinguish between those forces on the right that still accept the framework of capitalist democracy with elections and so on. Uh, but they really want to roll back the rights of workers and oppressed people within that framework uh, to gut public services, um, to make vaccination and mask wearing optional at best, and, and so on. And then people further to the right who actually would aim to ultimately dismantle capitalist democracy altogether. Although, of course, these shade into each other. There's no there's no, no moat <laughs> that divides the one from the other. Um, so thinking about it in those terms, what do you what do you say about the, the politics that we're seeing uh, around these mobilizations? And yeah. also oh. around things like the People's Party. Right. Yeah. I think, 
again, I used the word fluid earlier, and I, I and I think that's true. I I think these things are fluid, though I also think the sort of the more far right sort of politics has a gravitational pull on these movements. So that there might be people of of a different sort of political backgrounds that show up to these to these demonstrations, some more far right, more deeply committed and more ideologically coherent than others. I think if these movements continue, uh, you're going to see a sort of a rightward shift to them. But in terms of your question, like how do we understand the difference between the different poles on the right, I tend to distinguish between a more mainstream conservatism that in the Canadian context, say we would identify with the conservative party and a broader far right that would include fascists as well as and for whom fa and fascists key to their politics or, or organizing on the street, the being able to dominate the streets and having a strong presence in the streets to assert their politics. Uh, even if they participate in elections, elections are not key to uh, like are, are not uh, don't come uh, or aren't prioritized over sort of street based mobilizations. So on the on the on the far right of that, I would far right, I would include fascists. But I think it also includes people who are to the right of the Conservative Party, who are more assertive and committed to their racist politics, their post class domination, um, off anti ecological politics as well. Uh, but who might not necessarily be as committed to building street-based fighting forces like fascists are, uh, and may not necessarily be as committed as fascists are to completely doing away with electoral democracy. Although I, I would think a lot of far-right conservatives would uh, be less, wouldn't be as committed to electoral democracy as, say, mainstream conservatives, if if you will. So not to confuse, I, I think there's a continuum within the far right and there's a continuum between far right and mainstream conservatism. And as you say, they can sort of bleed into one another. Uh, and so just to give an example of that, if you think historically in Canada, uh, the, the mainstream conservative parties have often had connections of one form or another with fascists or fascists of, and fascists have sought to organize within mainstream conservative parties. So for example, in the 1930s, the largest fascist organizations were in Quebec and one of their leader, their key leader, uh, Adrian Arcon, was actually financed by the conservative party to help organize conservative uh, the conservatives electorally in the province. And so, and they sought to use his organizational infrastructure to build support for the conservative party. Uh, and that was done over two elections. And um, there was a support of Kant who was in uh, the Bennett, the Bennett government. Um, if you look at the history of the social credit party, for example, uh, in Ontario and Alberta, they, you could find from the 1930s into the 1970s, uh, white supremacists in the social credit party or the formation of the uh, the Reform Party, who in their earliest iteration, the late 80s, early 90s, I would say, were, would be more in the far right than mainstream conservatism. But they also had ties to, or they had fascists who were in them, in their organization. And the Heritage Front, a neo-Nazi group in Ontario, provided security for them in their riding association meetings in 1991 in Toronto and at a large rally in Mississauga. Uh, that drew about 6,000 people. There is a lot of overlap there. I, I do think it's important to distinguish fascism specifically because of how central violence and street-based organizing and the absolute destruction of uh, electoral democracy is to them. Um, 
And so it's important to distinguish that between the rest of, obviously between mainstream conservatism, but also between far right, who maybe isn't quite fascist. But I think it's also, again, just to stress the point, if you, if the far right continues to grow, I think you're going to see more people drawn towards the fascist wing of it. And then there's the question of the broader sympathy or the broader resonance that the protests have had, you know, far beyond the people that actually have shown up for the protests. Any thoughts about that? Well, I, I guess the first thing I would just say is my reading of, of polls suggests that the overwhelming majority of Canadians are still quite sympathetic to various aspects of like, um, like, vac- like to vaccine mandates, to uh, if not full lockdowns, but certainly like making sure that uh, various kinds of public institutions and businesses are safe for people to be in. Uh, and so most people, I, it, my reading of it is, is actually aren't sympathetic to the convoy. I think that's important to remember. It, 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 it's, 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 a, it's relatively small in terms of what it draws in. But I, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of people who have been hurt by the pandemic. And especially, not exclusively, but especially uh, small business folks who are, play a central role in, in the far right and in the convoy in particular. And uh, their answer to this is this kind of organizing. And so small business owners, I think, are in right now in a very precarious situation. Rising um, business indebtedness affects them in a way that like they don't have the kinds of resources and capacities to survive in times of crisis that like a lot of big multinational corporations do. They don't have access in the same way to transnational supply chains. They don't have access to foreign markets. Uh, and so, and they don't have access to the government in the same way. A thing like a lockdown or vaccine mandate can for a lot of these kinds of folks take on uh, like a, like it can in their mind be a real threat to their existence. And I think we, we, that's important to, to recognize as a, something that's driving them. Um, in terms of, you know, a, a wider layer of perhaps a libertarian sentiment that might exist out there, uh, I, you know, I think, as you mentioned earlier, that it, 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 part of that is the sort of the decades of neoliberalism and the way that that has just sort of inured people to the sufferings of others. Um, yeah, I think the, that's, a, that's an important part of it as well. And then... Looking forward, do you have any thoughts about the future prospects beyond what you've already said, and particularly around uh, what may happen with the um, capitalist crisis and you know the trajectory of the economy and how that may play out uh, around the politics of the of the right? Well, I think so. First, I think the some of the economic uncertainty that's been produced by the pandemic. You think of like inflation. Uh, like for one, uh, one the, the increased indebtedness for businesses uh, and their precarity. Uh, like the pandemic, even if the pandemic ends sometime in the not too distant future, I think the after effects of it could be felt for a, a while longer. But as I've stressed, the economic crisis isn't reducible to the pandemic. Canada was heading towards, and uh, Jeff uh, McCormick and I have tried to sort of argue that or demonstrate why this is in our article on Briar Patch and historical materialism, Canada was heading, Canada was in difficult, a difficult situation. Canadian capitalism was in a difficult situation preceding the pandemic. And the pandemic hasn't 
corrected that. It's, and of course it wasn't going to. And so I think that there is a real possibility of a deepening crisis of capitalist accumulation in Canada over the next few years. I don't think, I don't think it's going to be avoidable. How deep it is, the scale of it, obviously I don't know. But a lot of the indicators, low levels of profitability, low levels of accumulation, increasing indebtedness, suggest that it could be quite serious and significant. And so given that the far right, including fascists, tend to prosper in moments of, in periods of crisis, particularly periods of sustained crisis, I think we'd be foolish to think that this is going to go away with the end of the pandemic, uh, given as a already stressed internationally the resurgence of the far right started long before the pandemic and even in canada it started even if it started later it started before the pandemic even if it waned in 2018 2019 so this isn't simply about the pandemic uh, and should be prepared for it to continue and possibly to grow we've seen the people's party's support electorally grow from i think it was one and a half percent or so to five percent over two years and the pandemic obviously played a role in that but the people's party started before the pandemic as well um and the other another uh, i think important factor is what is, are we on the left able to do in response to this because that's also a variable here uh far-right forces are able to grow in context where they're not being challenged. And as we can see in Ottawa, the police are not going, and the state is probably not going to take on uh, or be committed to challenging the growth of the far right. Uh, and nor I think do we want to try to embolden the state and the police to do so because their, um, their power is usually gonna be, is usually turned on the left more than it is on the right. So. I think the ability of the left to think seriously about what's happening, make sense of it, and to mobilize on that basis uh, is going to be crucial in terms of how we like what happens with the trajectory of the far right. I think um, it's worth mentioning here. There was an article recently written by Judy Rabbit and Cor Corbin Russell. It was published on, on rabble.ca that made the point about how absent the left has been in terms of the broader politics of the pandemic and how that's created openings uh, for the right in the context of the, the pandemic that I just wanted to, to mention in case listeners haven't heard that or haven't read it, sorry. Um, maybe this the last thing we could talk about then is about what can be done, what we can do to try to limit the growth of the, the right um, and to try to weaken it which is obviously a challenge given the very weak, fragmented, and mostly unorganized state of the, the radical left in the broad sense in, um, in the society. Any thoughts? Well, there are no easy solutions. We have to acknowledge that, as the article you just mentioned does, that the left is not in, and particularly the social movement left, but also the electoral left, is not in, in a good position right now. And it hasn't been for some time. Uh, and so I don't want to sound like overly formalistic or pat in saying that you know, we need to rebuild our forces because it's true, we do. Uh, and I think that that is not something that's simply, that's not simply about our, our ability to respond to and, and, and challenge the strength in the streets of the far right, although obviously we're gonna to need to do that if it continues to grow. But in general, um, I think we're seeing this in, you know, I think there's some important exceptions, but weakness in general in social movements and unions. And I think 
the left needs to be thinking not just about rebuilding our forces against the far right, but about rebuilding our forces, period. And within that context, trying to build some kind of campaign that uh, that will, 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 will direct some of our political energies towards challenging um, challenging the far right. And, and you know, I was at a demonstration yesterday, a counter-protest in Toronto uh, that was organized by healthcare workers. And I'm so happy that they did that. But there was you know, maybe 200 people out and there was a few thousand at least of the, of the far right uh, that was meeting. And so I say that because there is a tendency among on, on people on the far left to fetishize confrontation and deplatforming. And while I think we ultimately need to confront and challenge the street-based power of the far right, we have to build our capacities to do so. It's very clear to me that small, what sometimes is called squadism, small groups of people who have not done any kind of like thinking about or made any effort to organize beyond themselves, fetishize their small groups confronting the far right. And in the 2015 to 2018 or so, I think that was a dominant feature within anti-fascist organizing, uh, certainly in Toronto, uh, where, where I was involved. And it was only because the far right wasn't able to grow the window that, uh, the window that opened for them closed fairly quickly and they weren't able to grow in any significant way it was because of that that um, we were able to sort of somewhat successfully challenge them when they did try to organize in Toronto but it was always very clear to me that if they had grown for whatever reason if they had tripled or quadrupled in size we were in no place to challenge them and there was not a lot of interest amongst a lot of the activists who were involved in the organizing and the anti-fascist organizing to actually think about how we could reach beyond our fairly small and narrow, politically narrow circles to try to build wider layers of a campaign based on wider layers of people. Uh, and it's and now there's thousands of them in the street. We simply don't have the capacity to go out and safely challenge them. Uh, and so that has to be front and center is rebuilding our forces more generally and then drawing some of that energy into anti-fascist organizing. And I think that's going to have to be um, building up community-based organizing and uh, the absolute importance of uh, trying to rebuild unions, which have mass memberships uh and could be really important sites for for organizing um and there's a potential power there that just hasn't been tapped into in the last few years with perhaps a few very small exceptions yeah i think it's helpful to think both about the things that we do to directly take on the right and things that, that make it more difficult for them by changing the terrain so that uh militant workplace and community organizing which gives people a way to act collectively to defend their their situations and try to make things better, you know, provides an alternative to scapegoating and to the kinds of appeal that the far right has. And the same, we could, we could also think about the ideological fight against the politics that animate the far right, whether that be, you know, the, the far right's uh, anti-indigenous pro-settler colonial ideas. Um, and maybe just as an aside, I think the, the, the very public, you know, questioning and criticisms of Canada that have come up in recent years because of indigenous um, struggle and so on. This is, I think, one of the things that infuriates elements, of which then are in the are in the far right. But um, 
Yeah, I'll just quickly, David, I'll add like the climate change organizing, I think is the very, is very important example of that, um, where there was like a very, for a moment, there was like, we were able to put tens of thousands of people in the streets and in solidarity with Indigenous peoples engaged in blockades that, you know, in 2019, 2020, just before the pandemic. And the far right, generally speaking, is uh, ranges from climate change deniers to, you know, just pro fossil fuels. And so I think there's important connection there as well. And I, I, it, your point is, is well taken. Like our ability to organize also shapes our ability ideologically to kind of shift the, the political narrative that, that is out there and to rebuild both materially and ideologically better bonds of solidarity. Right. So, yeah, whether it's around um, anti-colonial politics, anti-racist politics, just feminism, queer and trans politics, uh, various kinds of ways that we can take on the ideas that the the right thrives on, particularly when we can break out of the spaces where those kind of politics have more influence today into places where they don't have as much. Um, and I think that's an important thing to think about. And as well, again, there's ways where we can try to take on, uh, you know, then specifically their, their organizing efforts. But as you say, that takes the ability to actually mobilize in significant numbers. Although I think this was a point you haven't made in the uh, in this discussion, but I've heard you make it before that we have to recognize that these recent mobilizations were far right led, but they weren't made up of thousands of you know coherent far right people, right? Um, and so there's a there's a range of different kinds of of, of people um, that are involved, but there are times when we can take on their ideologues the Jordan Petersons of the world um, and take on their, their organizing when they try to actually organize in person, providing that we have the, uh, the forces to, uh, to do that. So I just think it is helpful to think about those, think about it in kind of two strands, the things that we can do to affect the society that makes it more difficult for the right. And then the things we can do to, to directly tackle them. They are, they need to be done together. I think, as you've been saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, 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 I think that uh, without that kind of organizing, um, we're going to be in trouble. But as you say, the not everyone who's at these protests is a, is necessarily a dyed in the world member of the far right. They're not. But the thing is, they're being mobilized by the far right, and they're offering an audience to the far right. And so I do think that that kind of political shift, that political pull, uh, is real. Um, but yeah, at, at present, it's it's not. You know, five thousand or whatever, ten thousand people in Ottawa on the streets who are all far right and certainly not fascist. Um, so, but nevertheless, we have our work cut out for us because, like, what we're talking about here is a significant resurgence of the left uh, beyond the spaces that I think it's become fairly comfortable in, at least certain certain parts of the left, uh, and 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 sort of reengaging our ability to. Uh, connect to wider layers of people um, who are not happy with the way the world is working, but aren't happy with what the, the, the sort of far right, the alternatives those far right organizer, organizers are, are posing. Uh, and so part of that, I think, is like also rebuilding people's sense of possibility. And that connects, I think, uh, quite nicely to the up next segment coming up on this episode of Victor's Children about workplace organizing in Canada Post and Edmonton. So thanks, Todd. Thank you very much for having me.
Grohl and Schmidt. Welcome to Victor's Children. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure. Could you introduce yourself to listeners? Uh, my name is Roland Schmidt. I've been a member of uh, Canadian Union of Postal Workers at the Edmonton Local for close to 20 years now. Uh, most of those years were spent as a shop steward and work floor activist. And most recently, over the past three years, I was just re-elected as the local president. So you've been working almost for 20 years at Canada Post. Uh, did you have any unionized jobs before that? Or did you just start there? Uh, nothing major where I was involved. I did have a few kind of odd jobs that did have a, a union presence, but I wasn't there long enough to really establish myself, such as uh, at a, one call center for Statistics, Statistics Canada. It was, I th- believe was represented by the Public Servants Alliance of Canada, but I was only there for a summer. So, And when you started a Canada, Canada Post, looking back, what would you say your, your politics were? I deliberately went into Canada Post to be involved with CUPW. Um, I uh, became disenfranchised, I guess, with the world as it is at a pretty young age in my late high school years and uh, early university years. And I identified that, rightly or wrongly, I figured that the labor movements are best shot of uh, creating a more equitable society that, you know, takes care of the vulnerable, but also uh, finds ways to maximize human potential. And I figured that the labor movement's the best vehicle to achieve that because it's always a question of power. And in the context of Canada, um, CUPW has a pretty exemplary history of uh, radical work, uh, work floor activism. So, you know, I'd, I'd read a lot about it, um, kind of followed up in university a little bit on the, like, the history of unions in Canada and CUPW always seemed to jump out. And so uh, I had the idea of like, I want to be a part of this. So I joined Canada Post. Uh, specifically to become a CPW member. And as soon as I cleared probation, I got on board with my first shop steward course. And uh, so I guess the, the rest is history. But as far as my politics, I would say um, broadly, I've always sort of believed in workers' democracy. And then, um, you know, or along the years, it's just different terminology comes up, whether it's uh, democratic socialist, socialist, um, work, work like uh, empowering workers advocates. It's I'm not too attached to any of the particular terms. It's just more about uh, getting the work done on on the job site. And when you started, when you got the job, did you go in by yourself? Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I did have other people I'd, you know, like had uh, relationships with in political community in Edmonton, but um, things didn't kind of line up for other people to see, seek jobs at the post office. So when you started working at Canada Post in Edmonton, what was the workplace like in terms of workers' power in the workplace? Well, it was a pretty rude awakening, right? It's like you you read about these uh, you read about these struggles from the '70s and '80s, and like especially the fight for, for CUPW to win maternity leave. Like I just thought that was just such a, a beautiful thing to achieve, and that how that benefited not only our union but really all of Canada, and um, the kind of power that was the capacity that was built around that to be successful. And then you just sort of figure that that culture is entrenched in the union. And then when I joined uh, in the early to mid two or mid two thousands is when I started at Canada post. Um, it, it was in, in the local at the time, it was anything, anything but that it wasn't like people were against the idea of um, an, an empowered union doing uh work floor activism. It was just more that people didn't, the leadership at the time didn't have a strong sense of how to create that. And they were more sort of bogged down in the administrative aspects of the union. So I got involved. I was really excited. Like I threw myself at any opportunity I could, whether it was 
like the organizing committee, like the newsletter committee, uh, shop steward work. And they were very excited to have me because it's, it's rare for uh, young people that knew about union politics, joining the union and wanting to be involved right away uh, would seek them out. Um, and so they couldn't throw opportunities at me fast enough. And it, it became this kind of awkward situation of they wanted to give me opportunities, but I had my own ideas of how the union should be behaving. And they didn't, some people did, felt threatened by that. It's not so much that they were against the ideas. They were just threatened by someone else kind of being like, hey, how about we do it this way? And there was definitely a little bit of um, rubbing up against uh as we call it, gatekeeping. So it's like, uh, you know, entrenched leadership bodies being very reluctant to, to share that influence. Does anything stand out to you when you think back about what the workplace was like in the early years when you started mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, how management treated people and to what extent workers actually pushed back? They're, they're like management's always been the same. It's just like they, they take advantage where they can. So if you have a workstation that doesn't have say, uh, a strong uh, shop steward presence, then you're going to have these little petty uh, violations of the collective agreement. Um, and th that was definitely the case back then. But the only pushback that existed was uh, maybe a steward trying to go into the office and lecture them about the collective agreement and threaten to file a grievance. And to which Canada Post, they, in most times, they don't care. It's like, okay, fine, file the grievance. Um, we'll, we'll see you at first level to discuss this. We'll dismiss it and then we'll let arbitration deal with it, um, you know, eight to 16 months down the road. And I always sort of cynically refer to this as the formula. It's like when Canada Post makes a decision, or I, I would say when most unionized uh, companies make the decision to knowingly violate the collective agreement, they've made the choice that the violation will be what they gain in violating uh, far exceeds the penalty that they'll have to face. And I think that's a, a larger question that we're going to come back to in our conversation today. Yeah, and so certainly the backlog of grievances at Canada Post is pretty infamous. It's, um, oh, yeah, thousands. And it's like, you know, uh, we have some that are dating back more than 10 years, right? So it's just, it's absurd. And it's, they know what they're doing. And the union hasn't sort of figured out that they need to change the way they approach this problem. So you said you came up against some gatekeeping. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about what kind of things you thought should be done and what kind of change was needed in the local? Yeah, so for me, it was like getting involved in the union and then identifying pretty quickly that they didn't have a pipeline to empower work floors. Uh, and by that, I mean, it's um, any skill set doesn't happen spontaneously. Like if, you're, if you want someone to be good at grievances, you train them on how to do that. If you want someone to be good at running an educational course, you train them on how to do on how to do that. If you want someone to be a good work floor activist, you have to put in the resources and actually have people um, come out and learn how to do that. So they did not have a pipeline to encourage that kind of activity. So very early on, I, I tried to encourage um, the education apparatus of the local to, to run uh, courses that would allow newer members, not just like the the true believers and the people that are always like the same 25 people that would come out to a GMM. It's like we would want to extend it and try and inspire people that had never come out to a meeting and to uh, try and explain that it's unions are not just about calling an office. It's about building collective power. And here are the tools to do that. So, you know, I, I received a lot of pushback on on those sort of ideas because it would just be like, well, why should we spend money on people that don't come out to meetings? And it's just like, 
you can't blame like the members could be difficult sometimes, but you can never blame your audience. You can never blame your membership. It's contingent on us as a leadership group to inspire people to get involved. And those ideas weren't received well. And especially if you have an executive that is majority composed of people that aren't hospitable to say workflow organizing, it's like they're not going to reallocate the resources to allow that to happen. So then what ends up happening is um, uh, I kind of maybe distanced myself from trying to do things in like the formal way, uh, like took my medicine and understanding that CUPW wasn't the, you know, was no longer the legacy. It no longer represented the legacy that it used to. And uh, just tried to find uh, allies outside of those like formal structures, which uh, eventually led to a pretty um, monumental campaign for our local in 2011, where we had a citywide refusal of uh, forced overtime. So can you talk about the taking back the workflow course? Yeah, sure. So I just alluded to the 2011 um, forced overtime refusal. So that was kind of like a perfect encapsulation of um, the collective agreement at the time said that the company was allowed to force uh, letter carriers to work overtime if it meant covering routes that were down for whatever reason. So we would hit the every winter would be a situation of injuries would pile up or people would be sick or people would be off on holidays and the combination of the things we would be short staffed. So you would finish your mail route and then they would say, oh, it's your turn. You have to take out like a portion of another route after you're done your route. And people like in the winter, they'd be like, okay, it's around the holidays. I could use a little bit of overtime. But when this became a matter of like two or three times a week, you would be forced to do extra work. It really deteriorates morale and people start getting quite angry. And the company would just rightfully say, oh, the collective agreement, you know, this is, uh, we're within our right to do this to you. And then people would like reach out to the union office and the union would just say, well, the collective agreement says that we can't grieve it. So what can we do? And uh, there was a, a group of us at the time, maybe a handful, four or five spread out between different stations that were just like, doesn't matter what the collective agreement says. If the workers don't like it, we should do something about it. And there was a couple of stations where um, we uh, started holding uh, work, floor, work floor meetings. So example, in my, my old station, um, we would bring everyone down to the lunchroom and talk about our frustrations involving the issue. And uh, actually there's some good, we actually have some video, someone took video of it that we ended up in implementing into the course, but um, we would have a meeting, talk about our frustrations, and then we'd come back upstairs and demand a meeting with management. And we would just say, look, we need more staff. It started very, typically a very Canadian uh, politeness. It would just be like, hey, look, our, our feelings are hurt. We're concerned. Do you realize our feelings are hurt? What are you doing about it? Uh, can you look into this for us? And it was, um, for my part, I helped framed it that way because that's where people were at. It was just like the, the workers really felt that management just didn't, didn't understand. So it's like, okay, we'll give management the opportunity to disappoint us. So they would come back the next week. We would follow up with another work floor meeting. Management would just be like, yeah, sorry, nothing we could do about it. And then that's when people, the switch came of like, oh, okay, this is an adversarial relationship. We aren't on the same team. And um, we started having representatives from different stations meeting and coordinating. And it culminated with um, like issuing of demands of like, we want, we want staffing uh, promises. And um, by, by this date, we want new people being brought in. We want forced overtime being done by this date. And if not, we're refusing it. And eventually it did result in um, a few stations just putting down the hard line of like, we are refusing. 
uh, management going around to people at their cases, like a group of management, like three people coming up to a worker and saying, with a clipboard being like, you are, you are on in line for doing forced overtime today. Are you taking forced overtime? And then the worker being like, no, I don't feel comfortable. And the management being like, are you disobeying a direct order to take forced overtime? And then like a group of workers all around, like supporting that person, the person being like, I'm not doing it. And then everyone just, you know, kind of uh, jeering a bit and then management going back to their office and um, we're just, you know, then they would have the disciplinary meeting for that worker. And uh, typically after a disciplinary meeting, there's a summary letter issued saying like what the punishment is. So one of those meetings happened. We We had a work floor meeting with management. We said that if you discipline this worker, there will be escalation. And they just didn't, they didn't discipline. And that, that broke Canada Post at that point. People just stopped doing forced overtime. And they eventually, like within, within a month or so, they brought on new people because it does take time to train new workers. And interestingly enough, in our last, um, in our last uh, collective agreement talks, um, uh, Canada Post was very conciliatory about removing the forced overtime clause in the collective agreement. They as far as I understand, they went as far as almost like volunteering that clause. So I'm not sure if that was partly inspired by the 2011 struggle. Um, but it is an interesting development because it creates a, it created a real political vulnerability for the company. Now, back to your question about the course, um, all of that organizing was mostly done like people like myself, other, other uh, activists who are just, this is their first time, right? Like myself, I'd read a lot about these things, but I'd never formally be involved in anything like that. So I had some like theoretical ideas, but a lot of the people we were involved with, really, this was their their first their first go at it. So I'm very proud of the work we did, but clearly we made some mistakes along the way. Um, and what we what we did coming out of that is uh, we uh, tasked a group of people to kind of take the video of those encounters, take like the written statements and demands and put it into like a package of like how to do successful workflow organizing. So it walks through of like, here's how you, here's how you build a group of people in your, in your workplace and how to engage other workers on an issue. Here's how to have a workflow meeting. You have, it's really, really um, pressing role play. And I think that's an important component. Like, so we have 30 people in a room. We have three people acting as management. We have them be very aggressive as managers to like push back on the other 20 and the 20 to like get through that part of the course, they have to really like, you know, they have to be confrontational. They have to, and they have to be constructive about it and supportive of one another. So we, we built the course around um, the lessons we learned. And um, when uh, I became president of the local three years ago, um, the first step was sort of reconfiguring our executive. So it was a big push to get more allies on the executive. So we formed a majority once we had the majority we reorganized the budget to prioritize education spending. And then we ran, um, I think it was 10 to 12 back to back to back to back uh, workflow organizing courses. Like it was a huge, it was like a huge investment. It was like over $50,000 for our local within like a span of a couple months to just book people off work who had never been involved in a union, um, a union educational before. And people were like, oh, you know, you're just like, people are just going to take the book off. But we made it clear, right? Like we had, we had application forms and questionnaires about like, why do you want to be involved? Making it very clear that you come to this course, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be pressured to do public speaking. You're going to be pressured to do con- confrontational role plays. And uh, yeah, that was like, uh, you know, by the end of it, it was, 
over 300 members that had never been to an educational before out of uh, a 2000 person local, 2000 to 2200 person local. And that, that created like our first sort of tier of new activists. And um, there was some uh, job actions that resulted shortly after those courses as a result of the training, which was very ins inspirational. And we had so much momentum that um, other locals were looking at the work we were doing, like Winnipeg, for example, we have very close relationship with the Winnipeg local, uh, looking at what we were doing and they wanted to bring either myself or other people we trained to run the course. Because that was the other thing, the people running the course weren't the typical official CUPW facilitators. They were like people that had work floor activist experience and we taught them how to teach the course. And then they taught other people how to teach the course. So our motto was then promoting to other locals, hey, we will teach you how to run the course. We will come and do it with you the first time. We'll train all your facilitators. We'll run the first course with you. And then you have the tools to do the same work in your local. So we had it lined up to go to uh, Lethbridge, which is like a smallish town in Alberta, uh, Calgary, uh, Winnipeg. We were having talks with Vancouver. They were sort of on the fence because their executive was split on the matter of how to allocate funds, as is the case. And then the pandemic hit. So, uh, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Uh, many of us are very sad at the missed opportunity because we really did. Um, we really believe that we were doing something unique uh, nationally. And um, if we could have just got a foothold in other locals, because what ended up happening is our local kind of hit a wall as far as the kind of fights we could take on by ourselves. Um, and we needed other locals to be able to join us in solidarity. And if we could have got some, like say Vancouver, Winnipeg, ourselves in Calgary, like you don't need the whole country. You just need a few big locals. And then all of a sudden you have considerably more leverage. So I know that's a little bit long-winded way to answer the question of uh, what about this course, but yeah, we're very proud of like the history that led to it. And then we're very proud of um, being able to provide that education opportunity. And I just spoke to the um, local Winnipeg president, uh, brother Matthew Aiken, and he was saying that uh, his executive just had a conversation about how they're excited to have people from Edmonton come out in either May or June, pandemic allowing, of course, uh, to get back to the process. So yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting time. Um, it's too bad we've lost these two years because it would have been incredible to see how far ahead we would be right now. But uh, those lessons are still there. And when we could get back to our work floors not being as, because uh, currently it's a big problem with the work floors are, the shifts are divided like four ways in a lot of stations. So whereas before you have most of the workers coming at the same time, now it's like split between four waves. And that creates a problem for work floor power because... <laughs> You know, if you have people split up between different waves, they're not coordinating amongst uh, between themselves. Uh, there's not as many people on the floor at the same time to confront management. You know, it's all these little challenges. And I can't do work floor visits, which was a key component of um, promoting these these courses. Like I would show up and we would get 100 people out into a parking lot and talk about what the union's doing and why we need the help of the members. Right. And those are things just connected to the pandemic, those changes yeah. with the yeah. Yeah. The, and ironically, they were a, a product of we had a very strong workflow activist group that when the pandemic started, we issued demands immediately of we want staggered shifts, we want cleaning kits. And Edmonton was one of the first locals in the country in CUPW to like implement these changes and uh, created sort of a template for other locals on how to unlike what sort of safety measures they should get and long established um, since the beginning. But uh, yeah. What was the response from the national leadership of the union to this work being done at Edmonton? You know, it's, 
it's a very difficult way, thing to answer because the, the political experience I come from, um, like I, you know, I kind of came up through the NDP youth at, um, provincially and nationally. Uh, I served on the, I served as like the chair of the youth wing in Alberta. Um, you know, we we're kind of like the left wing of the party, like the youth usually is, right? We we're the, trying to push the party left. And so I'm, I'm used to these kind of political challenges of people having um, formed ideologies and that kind of uh, shaping the way that policy goes, whether it's in a youth wing or informing uh, policy for the party. And coming into CUPW, I was sort of expecting that same thing, but I don't, I haven't honestly seen it. I don't get the sense that our leadership has like a clear, um, like ideological commitment or even like a clear plan. I just see it as uh, a lot of sort of well-intentioned longtime activists that are just kind of naturally like no one else is stepping up. So they're the ones stepping up and they're trying their best, but they don't have like the clear perspective of why we're losing and what we need to do to change, change that uh, downward spiral. So as far as how does national see it? Um, you know, I used, I used all the formal channels to reach out. Like I reached out to my regional office where we have our national director for Prairie Region who sits on the national executive board. And I would say like, look, um, can you like, can you present to the, like I asked first, I'm like, hey, could I present to the national board about what Edmonton's doing? Uh, to which I received the response, oh, we'll look into it. And then they got back to me. They're like, oh, uh, no, we don't have guests. That's not, uh, that's not precedent. So no, you can't, you're not on the NEB, so you can't be a guest. So I'd say like, okay, can you present on my behalf what we're doing? And then they would present it and then it would just be like, oh, that's nice. And they would kind of task a, like a couple people to have a phone call with me just to kind of, I don't know, it felt more like they were keeping tabs on what we were doing rather than looking for ways to help. Um, and, and, he, and, you know, I'd send emails to the national president saying like, look, we have this program. Why, like, why can't we, like, this is, this is inspiring stuff. You know, we're, we're our, like, as an example, our general membership meetings, we had a hard time getting quorum of like 20 people. And then we were having some meetings of over 120 people. Right. So it's like just on that alone. And then we recruited like um, almost 30 new stewards in, in my first year as president. So it's on those metrics alone, you'd think that would be grounds to be excited and to use us as an example. And then the response would be something along the lines of like, look, the national doesn't have any uh, control over the locals. So the locals have to make their own decisions. And it's like, okay, fine. Just facilitate a conversation with our local and the other locals. Because when I would try and cold call Ontario or, uh, you know, Montreal, like a local in Ontario or, um, say connecting with Montreal, the response I would get would be suspicion. Cause it'd be like, why are you talking directly to me? You're supposed to be going through the proper channels. And I'm like, okay, well, we're talking now. What do you think? And it's just like, I don't know if I should be talking to you. So it's, it's this weird regionalism, uh, gatekeeping. I think people feel threatened. It's like, you know, there's talk about like, oh, this, this kid is just running and I'm not, I'm like almost 40 years old. So it's kind of funny to be framed that way, but it's like, oh, is this kid running for national president or something? It's like, no, I don't have ambitions for that sort of thing. It's like, we just want to do the work because power doesn't come from the NEB. It comes from the locals. So how do we facilitate the locals getting powerful, right? And I think this is a, a, a broader tactical consideration for like other unions as well. Like I think the same dynamics exist every, everywhere. And uh, they're probably worse than other unions that don't have as, as democratic a structure as CPW. So yeah, it would be, we wouldn't get that support. Um, 
I will say though, we um, the education uh, vice president at National, Dave Bleakney, was very excellent in um, offering like, okay, well, if you have under $1,000 expenditures, we could support you in that way. So basically um, the idea was like, say I went out to Winnipeg to help facilitate the course, the Taking Back the Workflow course, National could help subsidize that up to $1,000, which, you know, we have a war chest of millions of dollars, right? So it's like, there's money to spend. And I mean, $1,000 compared to that seems a little bit like, oh, wow, you know, you could be doing more, but whatever. We like, we don't want to fight. We don't want to spend our energy fighting our own union. We just want to find the opportunities where we can to do the work that's necessary. So then thinking about that and looking for opportunities to do the work, what led you to run for local president? And did you have any concerns about taking a full-time position? Oh, yeah, absolutely concerned. And man, the the stress harms me on a daily basis. But uh, (laughs) um, running for the position, to be quite honest, I was ready. Like I was becoming very disenfranchised with CEPW. At that point, I'd been, you know, it'd been like, I think I just cleared 15 years as a member. And we had that big, that big fight in 2011. I was really inspired by that. And I thought we could, we could escalate that into further reforming the union. And it had the opposite effect. Like um, people weren't willing to make like a, a group challenge against the local executive at the time. And as a result, uh, the leadership just really kind of snuffed, like snuffed out the enthusiasm of the new group and people just sort of went their separate ways. And I'm one of the only leading activists. Actually, I may be the only one of, I am maybe the only leading activist left from that 2011 push. Um, so, you know, that happened, nothing really comes of it afterward. And you have a couple of disappointing uh, regional conferences and national conventions where um, things don't change too much, except for one on a bright note, uh, Mike Palasek won the presidency, um, I believe it was 2016. I can't remember the dates exactly, but uh, Brother Palasek's uh, someone who I had the pleasure of having a close relationship. When I was like the Alberta NDP um, chair, he was the BC NDP chair, youth chair. And so we had strong left politics and we weren't, I wouldn't call us friends at the time, but uh, we were definitely allies. And so he ended up in CPW, ran on a very radical platform that was supported by Jean-Claude Perrault, one of our famous national presidents of the past. And, um, you know, he came in like guns a blazing about like trying to do all the things that a union needs to do, emphasizing like uh, fighting unionism, grassroots power. But um, in my opinion, he was stifled by the National Executive Board at the time. He didn't have majority support and they did a good job of sort of isolating him. And, um, you know, that was a very dispiriting like 2016 to, I honestly, the dates are getting mixed up for me, but that, that span of four years were really disheartening because a lot of people had high hopes and not, nothing really came of it, not because of the lack of the effort on the brothers' part, just because there wasn't the political support at the national level. Also a cautionary tale about front-loading your politics to be leadership-centric, right? Um, that's not Mike's fault. Mike did the best with what he could. It was just a complete gap for the rest of the union as far as developed um, workflow activists and leaders at different levels. So nothing came of that. Um, so I was like, I was really, I was ready to, to leave CPW. I had, I'd, I'd received a lot of sort of encouragement and offers from other uh, labor unions to like, to, you know, apply for jobs with them. And, and honestly, um, you know, the compensation is considerably greater than CUPW, like whether it's your letter carrier or if you become a full-time officer, 
but the real the dilemma for me was like, okay, well, I believe CPW has is one of the few unions left in the country that has that um, that like social movement grassroots structure that can be changed. Like, or not, you don't want to change the structure, but the structure allows for like meaningful changes within the union. You don't just get stifled by the bureaucracy, although that's still possible if you don't have the right numbers. So I really believe CPW is one of the last, last vehicles for radically overhauling the Canadian labor movement and leaving CPW would be effectively giving up on like that part of the struggle. And it would be me sort of signaling that, okay, well, I could still do good work that helps people, but I would be giving up on those big idea, like reform, like trying to reform the labor movement. Right. So I wasn't ready to give up on that. And, um, I felt kind of bad about, um, not kind of taking on more of a leadership role. People had been kind of pushing me for a while at the local level. It's like, why don't you become, why don't you become a president? And in truth, I had a lot of anxiety around public speaking. And so I was very reluctant to face that. And it was through that work floor activism and, um, like through training, like just grinding it out that you, you know, I'm still nervous about it, but you have enough confidence to get through it. And um, it was just kind of like, all right, this is my last, my last shot. Um, I'm going to run for president. Um, and I was very clear to the local. I was like, dude, please do not vote for me unless you are committed to a radical work floor organizing strategy. Like that's the only way I want to do it. And if I get elected, if we don't, if we're not able to run these courses and have this kind of support from the members within the first year, I'll resign. So it was like, I ran conditionally and um, received like overwhelming support in that vote. I believe it was at least a two thirds majority against like a more establishment candidate, like another, you know, a, a, a good true believer long-time shop steward sort of person, nothing wrong with them, but just really traditional ideas. And they uh, tried to kind of do a little bit of scare tactic around like, oh, you know, Roland's just going to get us into trouble. And it's like, you know what? Trouble's good. As long as we're, uh, we have the right training and we're all willing to support each other. We're not inoculated against the consequences. Like this is how change is made. Members responded positively. And um, yeah, the, the first year of my first term was, I was, like I, I, I'm just, I feel so good about the work we did and like all the new people that came on board and our executive is made up of almost entirely new activists. And um, that transitioned into the beginning of the pandemic, which we did a really good job, um, like threatening mass work refusals in order to get those like protections in place early. And, um, but then since then the, um, you know, I had my reelection uh, partway through the pandemic and it was kind of like, all right, this is going to end eventually. I'll stick around because we could get back to doing the work. But to answer your question about concerns about full-time office, I was absolutely concerned. Um, I, I know I know of you could have all the best intentions in the world, but you get into that role and the bureaucratic pressure to just like, oh, you got to do 20 consults within this month. You got to do this many meetings with management. You spend Sometimes you spend more time with management than you do with your own members. And I've seen, I call it the drift when people will um, be tempted to have, in order to have change, they'll foster friendly relationships. Not, they're not friends with management, but they'll foster friendly relations with management because it's easier to ask management for a favor than it is to try and get like a group of workers to pressure them, right? So um, it was very disorienting for management when I came into office because I immediately, I, I cut off labor relations meetings because I was like, you're not, you're not, you're not listening to us. Like you aren't giving us anything. You're just using it as an opportunity to try and 
blame us for whatever policies that you're implementing. Um, so we're not having these meetings again with you until like you start actually playing ball. And it's been three years, <laughs> like, you know, they, like almost on a monthly basis. They're like, hey, when can we have the meetings? We're like, no. And then they'll call our regional office and be like, oh, they're hurting, they're hurting their own members by not having a meeting with us. And then our regional office will be like, just have a meeting with them. We'll be like, no. So it's it's funny because it has resulted in them um, like changing their policies at the local level. Um, but the way that I kind of push back against the pressures of like the bureaucratic drift was uh, when the pandemic wasn't happening, had a very aggressive uh, work floor visit regime. So it would be um, like in that first year, it was something like no exaggeration, like over 250 work floor visits. So my day would be split by, I would go to one work location in the morning, visit with all the different shifts. And then I'd go to the office and finish whatever bureaucratic administrative crap I had to do. And all those meetings were very like, like those meetings didn't happen in the local, or if they did, they would happen maybe once a year. So people were just like getting to the habit of having like a monthly work floor meet, at least a monthly work floor meeting where someone from the union was saying like, here's what's happening at GMMs. Here's where we, here's courses that you could apply for. Uh, here's a job action that happened at another station. Are you aware of it? Um, are you signed up? Like we built our communication apparatus. Uh, we didn't really have a website and our listserv had maybe like 400 people out of our 2200. So we built that up to over 2000 members are on our listserv. We built a website and those are just like simple things that especially for a mostly volunteer-based organization like ours, to communicate with our members. It was like a huge step. And as a result, tons of people wanting to get involved. And all of that is important for when people take on these full-time roles, because it, the tendency is always to take everything on yourself, to hoard influence and leadership. And, and you need to be very deliberate in sharing influence and power. And the more people you get involved, the easier it is to do that. And when you ran, did you have like-minded people running with you? Um, there, one brother, uh, oh, was it the same? Yeah, he, uh, the brother ran as the, at the time it was the organizing officer position. So there was only four positions up at that, at that time. And um, so I had one close ally run with me. Uh, the previous president had, had run, uh, ran for a chief steward position. Um, we had, we had good relations at the time, but I wouldn't have called us allies, but they weren't like, they weren't standing in the way of the work. They weren't going to stand in the way of the work we're doing, but they weren't exactly going to enthusiastically pound the drum with us. So yeah, at that time it was just kind of like going in on my own and it took like a few months. It took like a little bit into the first term to, to kind of feel out the rest of the executive and to like, you know, make it clear that with a new direction, we're. We, we really pressured people to, it's like, hey, you have a portfolio, you actually have to do the work. And so there were some people on the executive that had been used to just holding positions as like, a, you know, I don't know, as a resume builder or, you know, a point of prestige. And when you started kind of nudging them on at, at exec meetings about like, hey, how come this, how come this isn't being done, right? And then uh, that kind of pressure led to them just resigning. And uh, the people that stepped in were people that we'd kind of brought up through the, um, various activist courses. And then slowly it became like a, like um, a solid majority. And now we have uh, like complete consensus, honestly, like everyone is like on our 10 person executive, everyone is, is on board. How are things right now in terms of workplace organizing in the pandemic yeah. conditions and so it's, on? It's snuffed out. Like the mor morale is just so low, um, especially in the beginning when there was all that fear around what is COVID and how will it affect us? So 
that that fear sort of channeled into our mass work refusal uh, threats and to establishing like the the different uh, the staggered starts um, like splitting up the shifts staggering um, staggering when people come into the workplace staggering the breaks so that you don't have overlap between the shifts so once that was sort of put in place it became like the work floor visits stopped um, we couldn't really do we couldn't do the educationals anymore because we weren't allowed to have that many people in the same room we tried to adapt our training to online and it just it didn't work like um, when you're trying to train people on how to confront power and how scary that is it doesn't work to do it over zoom you need to have the physicality of people in the room and like feeling that discomfort and being like pushed out of their comfort zone to do it so the courses stopped the work floors were split up because of the different shifts um, no work floor me meetings and yeah it's just the morale wasn't there and it was hard to get enough people to have that sense of confidence to challenge management on issues and at the same time management was kind of hunkered down a bit too there wasn't as many issues coming up of them being like cutesy about you know just like taking liberties where they might have in the past like they were always they're always jerks right but um, no, there weren't that many issues that came up where people would feel agitated enough beyond the pandemic to want to take on that fight. So it's, yeah, it, it has been, a, it has been a demoralizing time and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's rough from my, my position because most of my, like my monthly reports and our, like our weekly updates are mostly <laughs> reiterating the same point of like, Hey, just don't lose sight of the plan. Like the plan is there and we'll get back to the plan eventually. And in the meantime, we're, we're here to help you in the office, but yeah, workflow activism is, we haven't solved that puzzle on how to do that effectively during a pandemic. And over the last number of years, then what have you, what do you think successfully changed in the local as an organization um, that you haven't mentioned yet? Um, and maybe are there things that haven't changed that you think still need to change in terms of how the local functions as an organization? I think for, for our local, we've really established a culture of organizing. So now when, example, we present a, a budget or uh, present uh, like an organizing course we want to run, whereas in the past, you would always anticipate a fight. Now, like our general membership meetings are, are mostly made up of people that went through these courses, right? Like these are people that have now been inspired to get involved in the union. So it's like there's a, a, a solid majority of, of people in our a solid majority of active union members in this local that um, believe believe in the plan, the workflow organizing plan. And as a result, it's keeping things on the rails. Like there are like some old guard um, aspects to the local, like older, not age-wise, but just like previous kind of leadership elements within the local that are definitely like looking for moments of weakness in um, our group and like try and take shots where they can famously uh, one of the one of the previous exec members thought that they would make hay by uh, trying to present a motion uh, that would lower dues um, just you know just so uh, some financial relief for members and they really tried to make it this like like almost right-wing populist issue of just like hey you know you your, our dues are the highest in the country which they are we pay 10 extra dollars on top of our regular dues amount. Um, they're like, our dues are the highest in the country and that's not fair and you should have some financial relief. And we're, we have this motion to reduce your dues uh, by like $10 a month or whatever it is, right? And so they really tried to like, like 
this was right at the beginning, uh, within like, I think the first four months of my presidency, and they were really just trying to take us down a peg. And so we just mobilized. And that was a, I think we had almost 140 people at that meeting, people were spilling out of the, the bay doors of our union hall. And when we, I, I remember very distinctly speaking on that motion and just saying like, this is just, yeah, okay, we're spending a little bit extra money, but this is the value we're giving the membership. And if you take away this, if you take away this extra money, it's like no more educational courses, right? You know, less shop stewards, we might have to cut a full-time officer position. And like, this is just bad. This is just bad from the perspective of, um, it's like, if you want the union to be powerful, you want to, you want to fund it, you want to resource it. So it's like, it's, we, we need to not only vote down this motion, but we need to obliterate this motion. And then the vote ended up being only three people uh, voted in favor of it. So like, it sent a strong message to that contingent and, they haven't been the same, same since, honestly, right? Like, uh, so yeah, as far as how, where our local's at, we firmly established that it's like, a, it's a strong left-wing culture in the local. All of our leadership are firmly, like they believe in the plan. Uh, our secondary leadership is on board, believes in the plan. And we are all just chomping at the bit to, for the pandemic to end, to get back to, get back to that inspiring work. Cause we feel that's going to be the thing that, um, is going to positively impact CUPW. We feel that if we could start working, building those relationships with other locals, it'll be the locals leading the direction of the union. And at a certain point, the NEB will be compelled to support our direction, right? It's, um, I don't think there's so much ideologically opposed to what we're doing. They're just frightened and don't know how to see it through. And, um, and when you're in the office and you're that divorced from the membership for that long, I think you lose sight of the collective power of the membership. So for us, it's like, if we could just uh, build up people's confidence and capacity and get, get that momentum going, it's uh, anything's possible, really. And as far as anything that needs to change in the local, um, you know, the saying of CUPW is the struggle continues. So with us, it's like, as long as if we take our foot off the gas at any point, like outside of the context of the pandemic, it's like, absolutely, those, those old uh, guard tendencies will try and get back in there. So you just got to be persistent. You can't ever stop with um, communicating with the members, offering these education opportunities, uh, supporting the work floor. So when they're upset about something, it's just like letting them know that they're the leaders in challenging a problem. And as long as you do that, you're going to be successful. And I think that's kind of maybe a broader takeaway for the rest of the labor movement is that um, I would say a lot of unions have uh, stopped trusting trusting their memberships or at least being a little bit weary or wary of what their memberships going to do. And that's a mistake because we don't have any, uh, we don't have any formal power with arbitration or grievances, right? We're just relying on like basically technicalities and getting lucky. And, um, you know, if we get legislated back to work, doesn't matter how many court challenges we do, right? It's like, we're going to be disappointed. So if the only way out of this problem is building that grassroots power. It's, you can't do that. Can't do that on a technical basis. You can't do that on filing a grievance. It needs to be a willingness to trust the members and empower the members. Do you have any other thoughts on what the lessons of your experience are for activists in other workplaces that are really different than Canada Post and in unions that are really different than CUPW? Ooh, um, I think there's like an interesting kind of I think there's a there's always a tendency to talk about unions in these romantic terms. Um, like example, like talking about like we need to organize organize Amazon, which we absolutely like. Someone needs to successfully organize Amazon, 
Um, but the sort of idea of um, you finally get to organize Amazon and then the problem goes away. It's just like, well, anyone who's been involved in a union knows that it brings with it its own politics, right? Like I like to, uh, when I'm talking to member, newer members about the dynamics of a union, I'll explain a union's like um, a provincial legislature, right? It's not just a monolithic body with the same ideas. They're different groups with different notions about how things should be done. And uh, sometimes that um, the, the established notion within, within that union uh, is hostile to say membership involvement, right? Like the leadership does not want to give up uh, influence or power. They don't want to let the members run the ship, so to speak. And again, that's just very dangerous because you could have the best intention, smartest, best intention leadership in the world, but they aren't the power of the union. And if they're willingly kind of restraining the power of the members, you're eventually going to hit that wall of a union union becoming ineffectual, which I would argue pretty much every union in Canada is ineffectual on those grounds. And I think, uh, you know, you didn't ask me to do this, but just to say it's like your your book, Canadian Labour in Crisis, does an excellent job of sort of detailing like the different structures of unions and gives examples of um, how certain unions are more effective than others. So it's, uh, yeah, I encourage any listeners to check out that book. And uh, it's, it's a great conversation to have with other unionists. And with um, CUPW, I think our window is closing to, to really get back to what made us powerful. Um, and the reason I say that is because Amazon is eating our lunch. Um, the only profitable parts of Canada Post business are parcels and ad mail. And we're only delivering ad mail if we're kind of still going throughout the neighborhood and uh, you know delivering parcels and letters, right? But if our parcel volume goes down, um, it's, you know, their Canada Post is going to be looking aggressively to shave routes because it doesn't make sense for us to be going door to door anymore. And Amazon's the big reason we're going to lose our parcel volume. It's like this year, it was considerably less volume than previous years. And it's because in Edmonton, and I'm sure there's some experiences similar throughout the country in Edmonton, this is the first year we saw the fleet of Amazon vans show up because previously what Amazon did was they would use our infrastructure to process product. So they would have things shipped, um, like they would have their um, inventory warehouses that would receive product. And for final mile delivery, they would send it to Canada Post. And Canada Post had special arrangements. And it's pretty interesting because essentially Amazon would be coming to Canada Post with a gun to Canada Post's head and say like, hey, we got an offer you can't refuse, deliver our parcels for us. And Canada Post needs to take it because they need the money. And then uh, knowing full well that as Amazon is delivering, they're building up their uh, their their own infrastructure. And when the time comes, they pull their product from us and then they have their own delivery fleets. So as that process keeps deepening, Canada Post has nothing left to stand on. And then we become a tax burden. Right now, we, we're not a tax burden to Canadians. We, we give back to uh, Canadian revenues. But um, if that changes, the political climate changes, right? And so, yeah, one of the bigger fights within the union was uh, is the question of, how aggressively do we pursue postal banking as like a means to not only provide an important public service to Canadians, but as a way of subsidizing our operations to stay competitive. And so I'm of the opinion that it's like our union maybe has four to six years to develop like a militant strategy to um, defy back to work legislation. Our union keeps getting back like we're this is a warning from the future for other unions. It's like, you think you've figured out the game in arbitration. Well, the government's just going to legislate you back to work. And it doesn't matter if you're an essential service. It doesn't matter if it's fair. It doesn't matter what labor law says. They will do this because they know we will not push back. 
And CUPW has been a case study in being legislated back to work, oh, since 87, I don't know, I want to say seven or eight times, like just ridiculous, right? And then no pushback. And um, it's really, unless we develop a strategy to basically say, we're willing to defy back to work legislation to institute public postal banking, um, I think I think that's going to be the end of CUPW as like an effective organization within a decade. So it's uh, there's a lot of possibility for us to make a lot of ground. Like if we win something like that and face down the government on that issue, I think it signals to the rest of the labor movement what else is possible. And CUPW can once again be like we're small but we're mighty, and it's like we can be that we can be that leading example. But if we if we think that we could just keep applying the same strategies. Um, unsuccessfully to confront these problems that we know are inevitably going to hit us the same way, we're going to be very disappointed and our members are going to suffer as a result. And it's interesting because I think although the challenges facing other units are going to be quite different than the specific things that you face at Canada Post with Amazon and so on, there's a broader lesson about uh, unions. That, you know, Some have, are clearly doing things that don't work in a catastrophically bad way. Others are mm-hmm. doing things that help them get by, you know, moderately well or not as badly, but that simply clinging to these existing routines in a changing capitalist society is going to be disastrous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thinking broadly then, you know, you obviously put a lot of effort into the workplace uh, building power. And I think that's really important in a situation where so many unions have just uh, vacated the work the workplace, right, in favor of the grievance and arbitration procedure and so on. Um, so much so that the idea that you might even have a workplace strategy is just not there, right? Well, what would yeah. that mean, right? It's uh, nobody's ever experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, but thinking that what, what the relationship is between building power in the workplace and building the power of workers more broadly in society, right? Not just to struggle against management, but because the things that we experience, the problems that we're up against are, are more broadly about capitalism, not mm-hmm. just in the workplace. What's, do you have any thoughts about the relationship there between the things that we do in the workplace, workplace organizing, and trying to build class power in society? Oh, it's, yeah, it's indispensable. Like when you're, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful thing when you have people that maybe didn't think like they would say, Oh, I'm not political or, you know, they don't, they don't vote or they don't pay attention to politics. And then um, because they're pissed off about something happening in the workplace, they could be inspired to take like a workflow organizing course. And then in that course, they meet other people. They're like, Hey, you feel the same way I do. Holy shit. And then they go back to the workplace and they're like, Hey, you know what? This manager is pissing me off. And now I know what to do about it. And now I know I have a group of people that are going to support me. And it's like in those moments is when you develop uh, your class consciousness because it's like you understand that you know the manager you can be friendly with them like you can understand as a human being it's like oh i don't mind i don't mind this person but you understand that like in the workplace their interests are not your interests and they're working to undermine you so when you 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 understand that and then you take steps you take further steps to improve your own situation as a worker with a bunch of people supporting you it forces as you know it forces that that contradiction uh, because manager, no matter how chummy you are, you may talk. You might talk about the Oilers or the Jets uh, on a daily basis, but then you're saying like, "Well, what the hell? You're making us go out in this icy weather without like proper safety equipment." And then that person just being like, "Hey, look, look, my boss is telling me I have to tell you to do this. So you know, I'm not going to risk my job in uh, 
going easy on you. It's like, you got to do this. And it's like, Hey man, I thought we were buddies. We talked about the game. It's just like, no, you got to do this or I got, are going to discipline you. And then it's just like, Oh, and that's just one step down the road of like a worker recognizing themselves like as a, as a worker in a political sense, it's like, Oh, okay. I need to stand up for myself and uh, learning that you can't do that successfully on your own. And I, I do believe that with enough repetitions of those experiences and you have, and say the struggles escalate, say it starts with like maybe a small work refusal in one station and goes to like a citywide refusal of forced overtime. And then it goes to like a, a pushback by multiple locals against like a certain work method, right? And maybe doing like a work to rule campaign. And then as those things escalate, a person's relationship with those politics deep deepens to the point where I, I do believe they're taking that home with them. It's like, you know, the, the next time they have a holiday dinner, someone's like, hey, what's going on at work? Whereas previously, the conversation might have been like, ah, God, the grind, right? You know, we all talk about the grind or um, as, as I was always kind of uh, tongue in cheek, say on my letter carrier route, when a customer would ask me, hey, how's your day? And I'd be like, oh, living the dream, right? You know, so it's like, whereas previously, it might be that sort of conversation, it might be someone with their eyes lit up talking about, holy crap, me and my whole station, um, face down this bully boss, right? And then like the person having pride about that and then having a sense of purpose that they might not have felt in other ways in their life, right? And then that maybe informing them like the next time um, an election comes up where it's just like they could look at all the parties and be like, oh, look at all these grifters and like having a more refined sense of um, looking at the issues at hand. And, uh, you know, the next time someone comes through their workplace with like an offer to like take a course or the next time they're like say out in the community and there's like an anti-war rally or a black lives matter rally all of a sudden these issues of justice become more poignant for them so what starts in the workplace and it's a great way of building bridges too right because a workplace is a very diverse place with people from all different ethnicities and belief systems and those class those class interests really unite people they really do. So it's like it's that super, you know, and I think in psychology, they call it like a superordinate goal where people can identify that, oh, it's like we have our differences, but this is the the, the big thing that unifies us. So it's like it's it's a it's a balm for what is an otherwise, I would say, a pretty uh, you know, sick society, even outside of the pandemic, right? So it's like there's a lot of division in society. A lot of people are feel powerless and frustrated. It's like, what do we do? And I believe the union uh is an indispensable model as far as like, here is a power structure that posits something different, posits something, what is possible. And I, I believe that there has been a substantial corrosion over the last almost hundred years of what, what's possible for a union. And, um, but I, you know, the structure is still there so that if people are deliberate in how they engage it and how they want to change it, that it can be turned back into the structure that can provide those opportunities for change, not only within the workplace, but within broader society. Because if these unions are successful in changing their workplace, those stories get out. And then they become like example, like if our local keeps developing the way that it has, um, like I had one idea that I'd love to turn our union hall into more of a community center and like could, could offer our, uh, our space and uh, some of our expertise as trainers into helping uh, community groups popping up that maybe, you know, it's like people want to organize their workplace and, um, they, they just want some basic training on how to do that. It's like we could maybe we're not well-resourced and best position, position to take on that organizing drive for them, but we could give them some tools on how to 
properly uh, feel out their like map their workflows and have those conversations, right? So there's tremendous opportunity there. And in the past, unions um, I think can did establish themselves as more parts of the community. You know, they would have like sports leagues or community centers and just like more prominent in the community. And I think as we gain strength and people are inspired to see see us in that way, we could get back to that role. Yeah, I think once the um, I don't in any way disagree with the importance of um, the of the workplace organizing and the way that it, the experience of collective struggle against the against management can you know do all the things that you're talking about. I think it then poses interesting questions about um, you know there's because there's limits to the consciousness that gets forward from people who are just thinking about taking on their employer, mm-hmm. right? And to think about the challenge of how that can be built on to have a, a more a really a broad class understanding, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm sure you've encountered people who are very militant against Canada Post, but have very contradictory ideas. Oh, absolutely, but, absolutely. You know, and and like actually, one point I missed is that um, it's so yeah, like Alberta. Obviously, a lot of uh, right wing people with some pretty reactionary ideas. If I'm being charitable about it, um, and it's it could be very tricky, right? Like they would they would be maybe anti union in principle, like. I had an experience with uh, with a brother out of my old workstation who were just like, was always very anti-union. And then it came to this issue of they were upset about, um, it was some issue around like delivering ad mail. And, you know, it was just a matter of they had to put in some more effort to make sure that this ad mail was delivered. And it just so, ha- I didn't think this would be the issue that would get people fired up. But sure enough, we had like a, you know, 120 out of a, like 160 carriers that were just like, I'm not delivering this piece of crap. Like, I'm just not doing it. And me being like, all right, well, and talking with other activists, they're just being like, well, is this the issue people are going to risk suspension over? And people are like, yes. And I'm like, okay, well, you got to go with the group, right? And so this this member who was very right-wing, very anti-union, had no trouble like shouting me down every time I would kind try and talk to him. But when he needed something and then we were... Uh, Oh, my chair stuck. Uh, he needed he needed something, and we were there for him. And then that brought him on board, and he's since become uh, quite. Uh, you know, he's like he's warming up to the organization, right? And I think those sort of opportunities are are important. And um, you know, all that we can do is patiently explain and offer the opportunities, right? So it's uh, as leaders within the struggle, we we say it's like, look, here's how you fight the boss. Here's here's tools to fight the boss. And you say it a hundred times and people maybe latch onto it, you know, five or six times, but once they do, it's like you have their ear and then you just keep building on that good work. And so when these things, these broader political problems happen, like whether it's a provincial election or say um, like the issues around police brutality, you also have a leadership that's framing that discussion. So whereas before it wasn't talked about, you now have a group of people that are willing to say, it's like, Hey, look, here's an example like when we're saying defund the police, here's why it's relevant to the struggle we've been conducting this whole time. And it really kind of, it challenges people in a constructive way, right? They're just like, why is my union talking about this? And we say, here's why we're talking about this. You know, <laughs> here's here's the issue of state power. And then, uh, and because they respect us, we have a better opportunity to convey a message than just, you know, a union that doesn't do any of that work that essentially is just signaling those those intentions without having the trust of their members, right? Yeah, and it's of course a challenge for people who are trying to provide uh, left leadership in unions that's really grounded in workplace power in a situation where there's no 
or you know, almost no socialist forces organized in this country outside the workplace. And so this takes me to the last question. I mean, fortunately, there is more you know, talk about socialism in some way happening, right? right. Um, less so in Canada than in the US, for example. There are lots of things we could say that are critical about the way people are thinking about it, but capitalism is giving lots of reasons to people to question it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are more people now identifying as socialists or anti-capitalists. But for a lot of those people today, I mean, I think, clear majority of them, workplace organizing has really no place in their politics. Mm-hmm. You know, people are becoming socialists or anti-capitalists, uh, but either there's no place for workplace organizing or it's just really abstract because they have no experience of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they're union members, they've probably not experienced much workplace power. They probably much more, uh, got much more experience with just grievance and arbitration plus political action, usually meaning it's just the NDP. Um, and as you say, even when people are more on the left, uh, if they haven't actually built credibility by making the union a way that or people, work, workers themselves, take on their problems in the workplace, then it's going to seem very detached. So do you have any thoughts about these kinds of issues of like speaking to you know, people who are listening to this podcast who would be socialists, but really don't have any experience of workplace organizing themselves? Um, and, you know, what you know, the importance of workplace organizing is for socialist and anti-capitalist politics. David, I think you nailed it when you said they just don't have the experience of it. And I think that's just why it's not relevant. It's simply that, like if unions say, say this was like the 1930s and unions are (laughs) being more effective in in the struggle and and representing um, a different possibility in society, people will look at that as a legitimate form of, of struggle and want to be involved in it. Everyone wants to be on the winning team. Like, I'm sure you have this experience in Winnipeg uh, with the Jets and the same thing in the Oilers. It's like, if the Oilers make the playoffs, everyone's an Oilers fan. But if they're not making the playoffs, it's like, it's a little bit harder to find the true believers, uh, even in a hockey, hockey mind sick city like Edmonton. But uh, it's, you know, everyone wants to be on the winning team and labor is not the winning team. Um, it's, they don't, they don't, uh, labor whether it's CPW or really any other union in the country, there, there's not a lot of positive, um, inspiring examples. And if there have been struggles that have been won, I'd, I'd say they mostly won on the on the grounds of like an arbitration surprisingly going their way, as opposed to like mass mobilization. Like there, there, I can't think of an example uh, other than like the last one might the last big example I could think of is maybe is it the early 1980s when it's like CPW defied back to work legislation. And that eventually led to um, maternity leave being granted in Canada. Right. It's like, that's, I'm having a hard time. I believe there was like the nurses in Saskatchewan also defied legislation to win a pretty uh, impressive contract in the early nineties. Um, I think I legislated back to work in 99. Oh, okay. Saskatchewan. I can't, maybe something earlier than that. I have a vague memory of it. Should have read up on it first, my fault, but uh, the idea being like there isn't a lot of inspiring uh, examples. And as a result, people maybe look at the labor movement and unions as kind of like this kind of old way of doing things. And in some ways, I feel like despite being relatively young in in terms of labor leadership, like 40 years old, I'm young as a, a leader within labor. And that's like that's saying something right there. But um, I, I do feel like like this kind of holdover from a different time, right? Like it's just like the work we're doing just doesn't really exist in the same way. Um, the strongest analogy that I could come to is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Farrell Dobbs, 
And his work, like, yeah, so 1934, like his work with the Teamsters, it's like, what? It, it was by no means by design that our local pursued this, but I ended up finding out about uh, Dobbs and their work with the Teamsters. And it's like, it's shocking how similar it is to, um, like, obviously their scale is much greater and they're much more uh, successful, but like the same sort of di political dynamics of like having to go up against your own union leadership and trying to inspire your own members at the same time. It's like, you know, it's it, if that's the most analogous example I could think of, and that's from 1934, it's like, yeah, we don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of things to hopefully sell to the new generation. So, or at least people getting involved in politics. So to the, the, your question of what do we tell them? It's like, I, I don't think we could tell them anything that's convincing. I think the best thing we can do is provide inspiring examples. So if there are people within unions that are embarking on this sort of work, whether it's like the, the labor notes, people pushing for left militancy in different unions in the States, even like, you know, although I think the, the consulting model of labor activism isn't the ultimate road, like the Jane McElvey approach, it's like, you know what, at this point, we'll take all the help we can get. It's like what she's offering is, is further ahead than a lot of what most unions are offering. So whatever, like just if, if a union's going to come to it that way, I just want them there somehow. Like that's where we're at. We're desperate. And if we can string together some wins, then you're going to see the people looking at this model as, as being an effective model. So say you have a successful organizing drive in, in the States with Amazon and say the Amazon union doesn't end up being just like the worst aspect of unionism. There might be a glimmer of hope there. Uh, there's a huge reform push um, for, I believe, the Teamsters in the States right now. So there's like an opportunity opportunity there to, if you develop a real grassroots leadership of a union, and as a result, you get mass mobilization, that's successful. Uh, those stories will recruit on their own. I think that's what's necessary. But as far as like me trying to sell something to a member or to a, another person considering politics, it's like, unless you're willing to kind of, and I wouldn't advise it, um, taking sort of like the route I took to politics of being like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a teenager that wants to be, uh, you know, pushing for radical reform within the labor movement. And I'm just going to join Canada post, get involved in the union and just see where it takes me. It's like, I mean, there's a lot of disappointments and a lot that could go wrong. So unless you really have a, a clear view of sticking it out for 20 years or more, then yeah, that's a, that's a lonely road. So I guess we just, hopefully the people in the unions are, are getting fed up with losing. Um, they start changing their politics or maybe CUPW uh, provides that spark, which would inspire other unions to, you know, consider changing as well. But once that change comes and it inevitably will, um, people will be thrilled to take up the banner once again, I think. Thank you, Roland. And I'll put a link in the show notes to um, Farrell Dobbs' book, Teamster Rebellion, which is an excellent uh, read for anybody looking to read about class struggle in the 1930s and the role of socialists in one particular place in Minneapolis. Yeah. So thanks for covering all this. It's been super and uh, maybe we'll wrap it here. Yeah. Thanks so much, David. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show. 
since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>